Hi there. I am so excited to invite you to attend our fourth annual free virtual special education and advocacy conference. We are hosting it here at Ashley Barlow Company in partnership with Rebecca Poe Teaching. And we are so excited for a few new things at this year's conference. The first new thing is that we have not just one, but two different tracks for attendance. For the first time ever, we have created a track that is specific for school staff and teachers. We also still have that traditional track that we intend to be really great for parents and caregivers in the IEP arena. So yes, we have a teacher track and a parent track. On that teacher track, you are going to learn about things like easier data collection, gestalt language processing, behavior reading, and other super hot topics in special education practice, as well as advocacy. On the teacher and caregiver track, you're going to learn about stress management for caregivers, using adaptive books, something that I have really kind of um, dove into here at my own house, inclusion advocacy, advocacy strategies, and so, so much more. That free ticket will give you one pass, one access to one presentation per hour on the track that you choose, either that teacher track or the parent track. Of course, if you are not available on January 19th or January 20th when the conference is taking place, you can buy tickets to access the conference on demand. And those tickets, of course, are available at our website, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference slash 2024. Check out the website for more information about ticketing. This year, we also have something super exciting planned. We have decided to make this a two-day event. When I partnered with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I told her that I really feel like School districts, disability organizations, and other community organizations need to start providing trainings that are accessible to teachers, related service providers, administrators, parents and caregivers, and other community members that are interested in IEP support. What if we all attended the same training? What if we all learned information about special education practice? curriculum, how to read evaluations, that kind of stuff, about special education advocacy, how we can collaborate more, how we can work together, and even about special education laws. What if we all attended those presentations and we workshopped them together? So together with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I have created the Empowered Workshop Series, and we are excited to bring it to your organization or school in 2024 and beyond. If you are interested in having Rebecca and I bring a workshop to you, you can see a preview of the Empowered Workshops on January 19th, the Friday before our main conference programming. For more information about that, either send me a DM or check out the website, again, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference dash 2024. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th and can't wait to connect with you. Hi everyone. Welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, 
a teacher or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer or a staff member at an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, educate, collaborate. Today, I am super excited to welcome Tim Viegas to the podcast. Tim reached out to me a few months ago and asked me if I would be interested in having him on the podcast. And of course, I when that happens, I do lots and lots of research and I really dive in the work and the website and all of the information about the potential guest. And Tim was a resounding yes. So I want to share with you a little bit about Tim. Tim works at MCIE and what he does there is he's the director of communication, which means that he does blogs and podcasts, social media, webinars, product development, etc. Throughout his prior 16-year career as a special education teacher, Tim advocated for the inclusion of learners with significant disabilities in general education classrooms and districts, and he spent three years as a district-level program specialist supporting learners with autism autism as well as emotional behavioral needs and intellectual disability. Tim founded an organization called Think Inclusive, which is now the blog for MCIE, Tim's current employer. I am so excited to welcome Tim to the podcast. And without further ado, we'll hop right over and listen to my conversation with Tim. All right, Ashley Barlow, welcome to the Think Inclusive podcast. Thank you, Tim, and welcome to you to the Special Education Advocacy with Ashley Barlow podcast. I love this already. It's fun. It's fun. See, everything, you can do anything differently. That's what I like about this. Okay, so just to not confuse anyone, Ashley and I have decided we are going to interview each other for each other's podcasts at the same time. This is like a very special episode of Think Inclusive in the Ashley Barlow podcast. Yes. And what I like about this is I always confuse people when I suggest it because my podcasts are more like conversations than interviews, I think. And so when I say, let's have a conversation and publish it on both of our platforms, people are always like, oh, I don't know. I'm a little <laughs> nervous. I like it. I like switching it up a little. Yeah, this is fun. This is fun. All right. The listeners to Think Inclusive may not know who Ashley Barlow is. So Ashley, would you... Tell us a little bit about you and your podcast. Sure. Let's do it. Hi, my name is Ashley Barlow. I am a special education attorney. I practice in the greater Cincinnati area. I am currently licensed in Kentucky and Ohio. New news, I will probably let my Ohio license go into escrow or go inactive, whatever they call that. I am also a parent in the disability community. I have a little boy named Jack who has Down syndrome. I am a self-advocate myself. I broke my back when I was 15 years old and I have a physical disability. I used to be a teacher. I taught German before I went to law school. And then I own a business called Ashley Barlow Company. And what we do at Ashley Barlow Company is we provide much more reasonably priced resources to parents in special education. I really advocate through the lens of special education law, the federal law, the state regulations, guidance documents, that sort of thing. And I 
have found through my practice that having a more collaborative approach and really focusing on the IEP team has been quite successful. And so after thinking about this for many years, I decided to open Ashley Barlow Company in 2020. I have two digital courses, one that is geared more towards parents, one that is geared more towards people that desire to become advocates or to grow their advocacy process or their business. And then finally, I am the director of education at the National Down Syndrome Congress as well. I just took that full-time job in October of 2022. So it's a new job. I'm scaling back my law firm and, and going full-time with NDSC. That's fantastic. And you have a beautiful family that you're very busy with. Oh, yes. I, that's what we just talked about. Yes, yes. I have a very full family life as well. My my son, Jack, is 12. He's like super involved in all sorts of activities and, and just trying to keep him engaged is a full-time job. Particularly, we're recording this over his Christmas break, and that is quite a challenge. And then my oldest son, Griffin, is a swimmer, and so I'm driving him all over the town for swimming and my husband works in finance. Tim, why don't we do the same thing? Why don't you do an introduction for my audience as well? Absolutely. Hello, everyone. My name is Tim Viegas. I am the Director of Communications for the Maryland Coalition for Inclusive Education, which is a nonprofit. And I'm also the founder of Think Inclusive, which is MCIE's blog and podcast. So I was a special education teacher for 16 years. I taught four years in California and the rest in Georgia, which is where I live right now. And in 2012, I started a blog called Think Inclusive in a podcast. And it was really to, it was really to learn more about inclusion. I had been a self-contained special education teacher the whole time. I'd been a teacher and had gone through various thoughts about inclusion. I started off as a skeptic. I didn't really think it was the right thing to do. But once I saw it in, with my own eyes and my own experience, and I started to learn more and really developed as an educator, I realized, yes, it is the right thing to do. And it is the best thing for all children, authentically and supported inclusive education. So once I started to do that and write and contact people, and I met a lot of people, self-advocates, people with disabilities, and interviewed them, the more and more committed I was to the concept of inclusion and inclusive education. And then I realized that a lot of people feel that way too. And so that's how we got our audience. That's how we got so many people wanting to know more. And in 2020, it actually became my full-time job because I contacted my boss right now, our CEO, Carol Quirk, who's been with MCIE since the late 80s, early 90s. They've been doing this work of partnering with school districts. I'll say a little bit more about that in a second. But she said, hey, we have a position open for a communications person. Just Why don't you just come on board and bring everything with you? And you can do this work alongside of us. And so that is how I get to do this uh, full time. And talk to great people like Ashley. Yeah. Um, so, great. yeah, yeah. So that's it's a change, isn't it? It's such a change. I'm going through that change right now. It's crazy. Yes. It's, it's like the thing that you did for fun and it was a little bit, it's still advocacy, but it's fun. It's, it's what I want to do. The thing that I, that I, I did on the side and just for fun and just to keep 
me going is now the thing that I'm doing. And it's, yeah, I'm still having to pinch myself after almost three years. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So should we dive in? Sure, let's do it. Let's do it. Is it my turn to ask a question? <laughs> this is the way we're doing this, friends. <laughs> is we both have questions written up and we're going to see where the conversation takes us. But for right now, our plan is to alternate. If you listen to my podcast regularly, you know that the agenda oftentimes goes out the window and we just start talking. (laughs) Sure. How? Let's go, Tim. Hit me with the first question. Okay. How I got introduced to your podcast, Ashley, was I don't remember exactly, but I do remember going through and looking at episodes. And I think I just happened to click on the one that you talked about dear colleague letters. And that was so interesting to me because while I am familiar with dear colleague letters, I couldn't tell you, Oh, these are the ones that you should read or you should use in your advocacy. You had a plan. Like you had, if you want to do this, if you want to bring this colleague letter, dear colleague letter to an IEP meeting, this is how you could use it. And I thought it was so clear and a way for a family could reference your information and it, it was very useful. So I'm wondering, could you explain what is a dear colleague letter and how can families or educators use them in IEP meetings with regard to inclusion? Yes. And I'm happy that you found that episode helpful. Sometimes as you do too, I'm certain when you are developing material, no matter what it's for, whether you're speaking at a conference or it's a PDF download that I'm developing for Ashley Barlow company or something, I'm always like, is this what people want? Is this too micro level? Is it too 101 level? Is it too nerdy? Is it like not even close to being at the center of the onion enough? But like you're always thinking, What is it? And I think that episode in particular was pretty micro level, right? And the feedback is good. Dear colleague letters are, let's also throw in policy documents. So dear colleague letters and policy documents are things that the United States Department of Education and or state departments of ed will publish in order to tease out the law. We're going to go back to high school government for a second. And we're going to remember that there are four branches of government and there's this like weird pseudo fifth branch of the government. I'm sorry, there's three, did I say four? There's three branches of government, holy cow, and there's this weird pseudo fourth branch. Okay, so you have the legislative body, they make the laws. And we lawyers are always like, don't blame me for the law. If you've got a problem, talk to a policy person. And those policy people, the lobbyists, can go talk to the legislators and get it changed. So go talk to Congress. I just deal with what the law says. And then you've got the judicial branch, the judges, the court system, and the court system interprets those laws, and we get case law from that, and then that also becomes the law. And then we have the executive branch, and those are the administrative bodies. So the executive branch is the president of the United States, the, go- the governor of the state, the mayor of the town, those, those people. And of course, they can make law as well. They can do executive orders and make rules as well. Then what we know about this kind of pseudo fourth branch of government is that the executive branch can make cabinets. So we get these administrative agencies like the Department of Defense, Department of State. And what's important to us in education is the Department of Education. 
So if the legislators make the laws in that legislative branch, then what happens with the Department of Ed is they get to make things called regulations. And the regulations tease out the law. So the big federal law in special education is the Individuals with Disabilities and Education Act, IDEA. And IDEA is really broad really broad. If you look at what IDEA says about inclusion, that is an eight-point font. It is probably about four lines long. It's not very long at all, that provision about least restrictive environment. And so if you want to try to figure out least restrictive environment inclusion by reading the federal law, good luck, have at it. What are you going to do? There's lots of little clauses, but what we have to have is we have to have these regulations that break down the laws. But still, even then, the regulations are still really broad. So what teases out the regulations? What helps us to understand the regulations are these policy documents and dear colleague letters. Policy documents are going to be like, oh, usually 30 or 40 page documents where the Department of Ed is going to say, this is how we interpret blah, blah, blah. This is inclusion a la Georgia Department of Ed, or this is dyslexia intervention a la Alabama Department of Ed. The Dear Colleague letters are uh, more, that's, you're like, finally, she's getting to the point, what are the Dear Colleague letters? I like to start real, <laughs> real broad. No, yeah, we're tracking. <laughs> so the Dear Colleague letters are letters that take the questions of individuals and answer them according to those policy documents, regulations, and the federal law, and the state law. So it might be somebody that's found a loophole, or it might be somebody that has seen a pattern of something that has happened time and time again. And so they say, I'm a special education attorney, or I'm a teacher, or I'm a parent, I'm a superintendent, and I've noticed this pattern, or I've noticed this injustice. What do you do about blah, blah, blah? I've looked at the case law, I've looked at the guidance documents, I've looked at the federal and state law, and I don't know what it is. So inclusively, I'm gonna go just a little bit deeper in answering your question, Tim, because what when we look at inclusion, the guidance document is, there's plenty of guidance documents on inclusion, but specifically as we look at dear colleague letters, there are dear colleague letters that deal with things like a student's right to supplementary aids and service. There are dear colleague letters that talk about how a child's educational placement is not to be determined by things like disability categories, severity of disability, configuration of the service delivery system. I'm literally quoting letter to Margulis of 626-2003, those sorts of things. There are dear colleague letters that talk about how the individual needs of the student have to be considered in the placement decision. Another category of, of guidance that we get in these dear colleague letters is how the placement of the child, how inclusive the placement is to be determined. And so we have, for example, letter to Basso, which is dated 823 of 2010, that says that the decisions have to be made by the entire IEP team, people that are knowledgeable about the child. Lots of people want to know about that homeschool thing. There's, mm -hmm. oh, I know that somewhere in the law it says that children with disabilities have to be educated in their quote-unquote homeschool. There's guidance documents, dear colleague letters, 
on that as well. And the last category that I have broken down in my inclusion workshop is modifications to general education. So we've got, for example, and I think this is, um, and actually the guidance document from OSERS that says that students can't be excluded from the gen ed classroom solely on the basis of the need for modifications to the gen ed curriculum. So they're just a wealth of information. Yeah, that was a big, long answer, but I get real excited about it. Yeah. And also, so you have some sort of training or package people to learn more. Is that right? I do. Yes. So I have a product called the Inclusion Workshop. It is about an hour and a half of video content, and it walks you through this document, this PDF document that is 25 pages long that is called the Inclusion Workshop Workbook. And what we do is we focus on the law and then we look at the regulations and then we look at those guidance documents. I also give an example of a case because I just like for people to see what happens with real students, real kids in real life situations. And then I have several pages and several minutes of the content that talk about practical strategies to advocate for inclusion. So one of those, for example, is to really focus on the schedule, like what classes are available or if it's elementary school, what's the day look like in the gen ed classroom? And then how can we capitalize on that? Like how can we find time when we can push in services or if we think this child might need some pull out resource time, where can we find time that's great for that, that we aren't taking away from other meaningful time? What kind of factors should we consider when we look at the schedule and that sort of thing? I have some practical strategies and also some lists of criteria that the case law says that we need to consider when we are determining a student's placement. That list actually is a compilation of discussion points that I've had when talking to other special education attorneys and advocates over the years. I literally just started pressing record when a friend would call me and say, hey, I have a kid with Down syndrome. I have a kid with an intellectual disability. And, and we've got an inclusion discussion. I'm like, okay, great. Let me hit record because I... I might be able to pull something out. Once I start talking to people, I get good ideas. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Oh, yeah. Oh, do you have a follow-up? I was just saying that's great information. I think that our listeners would definitely want to look at that. Yeah, thank you. It is. I'm very proud of the inclusion workshop. Probably that and my negotiation strategies course are the two that I'm most proud of because again, like I advocate from within the framework of within the framework of the law. And so that is something that I think is quite important. Tim, I was super interested in the good work that you all do there and super interested in what kind of how if we could dive into this discussion about the definition of inclusion, mm, right? Yeah. Because I, I think anybody that puts themselves out there as an inclusion expert or someone that's more than curious about inclusion, inevitably the conversation comes up, what is inclusion? And so I think my first question in that is maybe you could talk about like the kind of mentality that inclusion doesn't necessarily have a definition. And in fact, it can be interpreted so many different ways by so many different people. Yeah, I can speak to that. So inclusion is a big word and especially inclusion, like with a big guy, it's more like freedom or justice. They're hard to, they're hard to define in a way that's 
useful. But how I define inclusion is really more how I would define inclusive education. So in the context of what we do at MCIE and when I say inclusion always works, what I mean is that when inclusive education is supported and authentic, that it always works. And if it doesn't work, as a lot of people like to say, it didn't work for this kid. Inclusion didn't work for my student or inclusion didn't work for my child. When you look at why it didn't work, it's because it wasn't supported and it wasn't authentic. So how we describe inclusive education is really with four things. And we draw a lot on the work of Michael McSheehan and Cheryl Jorgensen in their Beyond Access model. So I always want to give them credit for this frame, but membership, participation, and learning. And we emphasize one more of those, and I'll explain all of those, but placement. You can't be included without being there. And I think that gets a, that gets missed a lot when we're having the discussion of inclusion. I, w- I just had this conversation with, with some people from the TASH conference. I was just recently, um, are you familiar with TASH, Ashley? Yes. Yes. Okay. We were talking about how, when we talk about inclusive education, what should be emphasized. And since I was a special education teacher in a segregated special education classroom for students with disabilities, I thought that I was having high expectations for my kids. I was trying to push them out into general education as much as possible. I was giving access to general curriculum standards. That's what else do you want? That's inclusion. What I didn't realize was that when we're really looking at authentic inclusion, you can't be a member of a community without actually being in the community. And that includes general education classrooms. Like, you know, it, the very nature of those segregated classrooms being in a school means that some kids are excluded and that community has decided this is okay. So that to me, as I've really evolved and gone to and really understood what that inclusive education means, it means that absolutely has to be minimized as much as possible. And now there's certain students that we may not have figured out how to include and they we may need to make arrangements for them and those arrangements may be may need to be as alternate placements but that doesn't mean that we create programs disability specific categorical programs that we create for students because i don't think that is the spirit of idea i don't think that's what lra really means I think that when we talk about inclusion, we talk about everyone in first, and then we decide on the needs of the student. And so again, some inclusionists don't like that I bring that up, that there may be separate places, but I also feel like we have to be realistic and think about how we're constructing and that the goal is 100% no no separate placements. That is the goal. That if, is you, the goal. if you get a child just to a classroom, but the classroom isn't effective, then we aren't doing the child a service. So I completely agree with you. In an ideal situation, is it absolutely possible and is it absolutely best practice? Yes, but if the people and the systems don't have the structure in place yet, 
All we can do is continue to advocate for that structure to be in place, but we can't place a child without good, without good systems in place. Yeah, I agree with you entirely. And yeah. I think anything else, anything to the contrary, if anybody says anything to the contrary, they aren't really looking at what the school looks. Because if you look at the school, heck, even our own houses. Sometimes when I have parents that say, no, I don't want one minute of pull out, or I don't want one second of that, that anybody else doesn't have. I say, okay, I, I completely validate that, but do you ever go out to dinner, you and your significant other? Or do you ever say, like in my family, do you, so in my family, I'll just tell you the little story because the questions are silly, but Jack has a really hard time going to his brother's swim meets. The sensory environment is just not good for Jack. And it makes him very, and if I was a really strict inclusionist, I would say, Jack's got to go to the swim meet because the whole family's got to show up at everything we do. And that is not right for Jack. Would that be great? Yes. Would his brother love for him to see him swim? Absolutely. Do we find ways for him to see his brother swim? 100% because we know that is part of our inclusive family environment, but we don't cram him into the placement of the general education swim meet that's hot and loud and crowded and make him endure that because there aren't supports for him. There aren't adequate supports for him there. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great example of if you were to have, right, just said, okay, he's in, he's being tortured because he's in there and then go back and say, inclusion didn't work, didn't work. It's not that it didn't work. It's just that the supports in the accommodations, you do the best that you can, you know, in that environment and you make decisions that are very unique and personal and individualized for that. So there, there is some nuance there, right? There is some nuance. It's not a hundred percent in a hundred percent out type of thing or a hundred percent in without figuring out what that looks like. Right. And yeah. so going down the list of the four things, placement, or being there, I guess, physically, physical presence is what we talk about. And then we also talk about membership, participation, and learning. So in the school context, if a learner is in a classroom, are they a member of that classroom? Are they part of the community? Are they missed if they are gone? Do they feel like they have friends? These are all important aspects of being authentically included. And then for participation, what are say something about that yeah. belonging? Like I am DEIB gushing, mm-hmm. we call that belonging. So that yeah. feeling of being a part of the group, something that I've really grown with as a parent is, and you said this well, so do they feel that? Because I can't mm-hmm. tell you how many times both of my kids have done things and I've thought, oh, they don't like that. They, Jack wasn't really included or Griffin wasn't really having fun. Let me tell you something, Jack nine times out of 10, we'll feel very included. He'll tell you all about his friends and everything else. He might've really only actively engaged with somebody for 12 and a two hour long birthday party, but he will talk about those 12 minutes and those friends and that one thing that he was able to regulate himself to participate in. Like he went down the, the bouncy house slide five times. Everybody else did it 38 times. He did it five times and he will think that is the greatest thing in the world. And I have to get rid of my type A, a student mm. vibe. And you did a great job. That was really fun. I'm so happy that you had fun with your friends and that sort of thing. If he thinks he, if he feels like he had a great time, 
case closed. That is awesome. We can always push for more. That's my personality, but we don't have to. And same thing, like my son Griffin, who is neurotypical, he is very stoic. And I like turn cartwheels and jump up and down when I'm excited. You can hear it in my voice. Griffin does not. And I have to tell myself all the time, Griffin is having fun. Griffin is showing that he is having a good time differently than I would. And that is not only okay, it is beautiful. So that belonging piece, we have to make it student-centered or person-centered and take ourselves out of it or at least separate ourselves from those emotions. Yeah, I like that. I like how you're putting that. Yeah, because sometimes as an educator, you're like, yeah, there you make assumptions. Of, oh, yes, they're having fun. Yes, they feel included. Yes, they feel like they belong. But it could go either way, right? You're so right. that's the thing it that could. I think that's the most important thing is you need to ask. I tell, I teach a class apart from MCIE that for in Georgia for Georgia special educators and about on autism. And so I often tell the participants in the class, how do you learn about autism? You might want to ask your students. <laughs> you might want to ask someone with autism because they are, they're the ones who are the master or the expert of their own experience. And we just have to not make assumptions about how people think or feel and just ask them. I think that's probably a that's probably a universal thing, especially for learners with disabilities. Real quick, I wanted to finish my four. Yeah, keep going, keep going. Uh, so patient, what is the learner doing in the class? Like actually doing, are they doing the same types of activities that everyone else is doing or they're in the back of the class and they're working on letters and sight words and everyone else is doing math? It's like, we, we really have to think if that's happening, that's not inclusion. Right. Even if it is only patient, you can modify an activity so any learner can participate in an activity. So you have placement, membership, patient, and what are they learning? Are they learning grade level standards? Are they, are they getting access to grade level standards? There's so many resources out there to be able to modify curriculum. Ashley, I know that you have your own information on that, but as a fifth grade science lesson, you can do things to that lesson to give access to someone who is reading below grade level or is only able to access it at an entry level. We need to make sure that if that's not happening, we're not calling that inclusion, right? So placement, membership, participation, and learning. That is how MCIE defines it. I think that's a great way to think about it. Yeah, I really like that as well. I think that it summarizes it extremely and that learning component, it, it can take on so many different forms. So I think that's really important. Well done, Tim. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, no, and I don't want to, I don't want to miss this either. The big thing that we do at MCIE is systems change work. So we partner with school districts who want to be more inclusive uh, of all learners. And we partner with them for a multi-year phased in approach. So. We've done this multiple times in the state of Maryland because we have historically been funded by state grants in the, by the Maryland Department of Education. But we, over the last five to 10 years, have been working with others. Uh, this year in particular, we're working in Illinois, uh, Oklahoma, and Virginia. We've got a number of other states coming on board, hopefully in the next, in the next calendar year, in 2023. But it's all around the work of systems change and equipping school leaders to really this work because inclusive education isn't going to happen if 
with one professional development workshop just isn't. It needs to be a top-down implementation. And something that Carol is really great about talking about, and I'm not so great about talking about it, but systems, the work that we do, it's based on implementation science. So there's like this actual science of how to change systems. And it's really amazing that not, it's amazing to me that not everyone is doing this. <laughs> so I guess it's just my bias, but you can really change systems if you do it a certain way. And we've been doing that work for so long. And it's honestly, actually, it's my job to tell people, right, that you can do it. So if you're listening, and you are a school leader, you can do it, it is possible, and it can be sustainable. So anyways, I could go on and on about that. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, and that's a very good point. That kind of ties back to what we were saying about placement, right? There's always room for improvement. There's always room, even those of us that are pretty purists about inclusion in my own home, I know there are way better strategies and even just mentalities that we can have about inclusion in the community for Jack, which is where I'm the master contractor, right? Like I'm in charge of home and community. And so I think that's a really good point that we have to put systems in place in order to get things started. And then we can continue to change the systems and there are ways to change systems. And there are wonderful organizations and experts all across our country, MCIE being a, a wonderful leader in that area where we can really affect change. Uh, and so we've got to advocate for our kids and then we've got to advocate for continued change across the land, as we say. I think that kind of leads to my next question, Tim, and that is when you see inclusion done, what's it look like? Yeah, that is, that's a hard, that is a hard question, but I will say that I had the opportunity to visit Cecil County Public Schools in Maryland. And they're a district that MCIE worked with in the early 2000s on systems change. And they are currently, we would say, one of the most inclusive school districts in the United States. And we have a very short list there in the top. And by the way, there is no list of, inclu of fully inclusive schools because a lot of reasons, but we pick Cecil Public Schools because, we, because of our history with them and because we often get the question of where are the inclusive schools, right? And we wanted to be able to point somewhere. So we have two, actually. We have Cecil County Public Schools in Maryland, and we have Westland Wilsonville Schools, a Westland Wilsonville School District in Oregon. And the reason why we picked those two is because not only do they have high LREA percentages, they're close to 90% in Cecil County, and I think over 90% in Westland Wilsonville, but they have everything that we've talked about. Their leadership is committed to inclusion and belonging for all learners. They don't have disability specific programs. Every learner is in. And the reason why I know this specifically for Cecil County is that we are producing a podcast series called Inclusion Stories. For this very reason, we wanted to be able to tell the stories of not only families who are pursuing authentic inclusion for their child, but also highlight the school districts that are actually doing this work. And so I was able to visit Cecil County Public Schools in September of 2022 in preparation for this podcast series. I did some recording. I was able to tour the schools, interview the school leaders, 
And it was absolutely amazing. First of all, the mindset of the school leaders, every single leader I talked to had a mindset that everyone, all learners belong in general education first, every single one. And that the services were delivered at the home school and that learners are general education students first. They ride the same buses as everyone else. There's no special education, every learner. So the bus, even down to the bus systems, the buses were equipped with supports, whether that was a lift or whether that is with personnel, those learners went to those, went to their homeschool and they're supported. Learners with communication, complex communication needs, learners with intellectual disabilities, learners on the autism spectrum are all included. So To see that actually in practice at multiple sites was just, it was absolutely amazing. So I think that they are a great example of how to do it. And just as a preview to your conference at the end of January, I'm going to be good plug as well. Thank you. As one of the sessions, I will be, I guess, playing would be the best word, playing the a pilot episode of Inclusion Stories that will feature a family here in Georgia that is uh, pursuing authentic and inclusive education and um, some clips from my interviews with um, the people at Cecil. Yay, I can't wait to see it. I think you just gave a really good list. You talked about a school where it's going well, and you gave a list of things that people can look for when they are either leaving their district because they aren't happy or they're moving. I have a lot of military families that listen to my Mm. podcast and they are moving a lot. And so I think that list is very helpful. And I agree with you. We've got to, to shift the mindset of folk. I've talked about this on my podcast as well. Like you said at the beginning of this episode, when I was first teaching, when I was in school, the big question was, do you think that everybody should be educated in the same classroom? And I was like, no, absolutely not. They're going to bring everybody else down. The whole thing's going to slow down. And I'm not going to get my extension activities that I need if I'm in class with people that need more time to figure it out. And it's so crazy how my experience as an educator and as a self-advocate and then most, for me, most dynamically as a parent have changed the way that I have thought about inclusion at 180. Yet I still see, obviously the research supports it also, right? So I don't want to see, I see the other side of the argument because I don't see the other side of the argument, but I understand, I think, how some people are still extremely intimidated because listen, it is intimidating. It's intimidating for me sometimes as I think about a community experience for Jack. It's intimidating as I am a member of his IEP team and help them negotiate inclusive question that we have in a system that isn't completely perfect. Not that there is a completely perfect system, but in a system that has plenty of room for improvement. But you know what? Here's the thing is, as an advocate and as a parent, I am ready for it bring it. Maybe 300 days out of the year, I wake up thinking, okay, here we go. Let's do it. And maybe 50 something years, days out of the year, I'm like, I'm tired. I'm taking a break and we'll see how things go. We got to stay at it. That is real. Yes, that is real. And I think that inclusionists have to, and I do call myself that we have to be, we have to be real. We have to be real about that. It's hard, that it's hard. And also that I'd rather have a school that was moving toward 
inclusive practices, even if it wasn't perfect. And I think that I like what you said about not allowing things not to be perfect. I think we perfectly imperfect. That's our brand. Yeah, there you go. Perfectly imperfect. We have to be okay with that. We have (laughs) to be okay with that because we have to be moving. We're either moving toward inclusive, inclusive practices or authentic, inclusive education or not. And when I hear, so when I hear school districts that are like, oh, we're creating an inclusion program, like all learners with intellectual disabilities are now going to be included. Okay. But what about else? Like that may, okay. That's great. I don't personally, I do not think that is moving toward inclusive education. No. Okay. So, you know, a huge piece to inclusive education is the modifications and accommodations that are in the gen ed curriculum, right? Everybody's going to get really good specially designed instruction when they go out of the classroom for special education or when special education services are pushed in. Not everyone. It is pretty straightforward for a special educator or a general education provider or a related service provider to come in and implement a curriculum that is designed to help a student read or to help a student self-regulate or whatever. Like it, you can learn zones of regulation pretty quickly. You can learn Orton-Gillingham reasonably quickly, but, and you should be able to implement those things with fidelity, but to modify the general education classroom and all of those experiences and to provide that grade level access to every student that is based on their unique needs is a really exciting and constantly changing challenge. And so people have to, to the extent that it's not, you probably need a framework shift. And you probably need to think to yourself, this is a really awesome opportunity. I am in a job that allows me to continue to learn because humans are different. And that's really beautiful. If all the humans were the same, life would not be beautiful. And so I get the opportunity to teach this thing that I've taught over and over again. I literally turned down a job because I was going to German to eighth graders, like I think a six week course, eight times a year for six periods a day or five periods a day. And I was like, oh my gosh, I would die. But if it was, I would not literally die. But if it were a wholly inclusive school and I got to figure out how to do that, even if it was just one period a day for a learner with uniquely different, maybe that challenge would have been interesting enough that I would have taken that because teaching school can get really monotonous and boring. Sometimes it's just shifting the framework and thinking, Oh, this is cool. I get to do something a little bit different. So yeah, but I think a humongous aspect to inclusion and something that we can't overlook is the best practices for modifying that gen ed curriculum, that gen ed content and providing it in an equitable and meaningful way to all Mm. students based on their unique needs. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We have answered all of the world's questions, Tim. Pretty much. I feel like we could... Ask more questions, but that may have to be like another time, right? That That's the way all of my podcasts end is, oh man, <laughs> we ran out of time. I wanted to say so much more, but the people can't listen forever. That's what I've come to realize. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. If you are a listener of Thinking Inclusive, think- please listen, take a look at the episodes that Ashley Barlow has on her pod, because I know that you'll find some that are very beneficial, if not all of them. And Tim, I think that we can promise our listeners that the organizations for whom we work and the organizations that are so near and dear to our heart will continue to collaborate and we will continue to 
bring good content that is inclusion centric as well as content that has inclusion undertones at all times because these conversations are far from over and there's so much more good work to be done. Absolutely. Ashley Barlow, thanks for being on the Think Inclusive podcast. Thank you. And I will echo the sentiment that Tim just gave, and that is be sure to follow all of the platforms that are over at MCIE as well as Think Inclusive. And thank you, Tim. This has really been an honor.